Friends, all year long, as I think you know at this point, we're going through a series that we're calling Roots and Relationships. Um, it starts with this idea that there is such thing as a good life. Um, there is such a thing as life as it was meant to be lived, to the life to the fullest. We could fill in all kinds of adjectives. We could say a life that is whole and holy, healthy, complete, but this is what we're getting at. And what we've learned this semester is that if we are to have this life, we need to be open and receptive to God's word. We need to get it inside of us. We need to put down roots. We need to have relationships, folks around us who can sort of take the weeds off. And if we have all these things in place, we're going to grow healthy and strong. This good life is going to take root and dimension in our life, and we will bear fruit. We need roots. For the, the rest of this semester, we're going to talk about having roots and what, are, what that looks like and sounds like and feels like. All of next semester, we're going to talk about relationships. But for the rest of our time this semester, we're going to be talking about roots. And I want us to talk about what that looks like and feels like across sort of the whole of our lives. We've said that having roots means having this hidden support system, something that keeps us grounded and something that gives us life. We've called it a hidden life with God. Not hiding our faith, right? But having this thing that gives us life that others would eventually taste and see that that God is good, that people taste our fruit, they don't taste our root. I'm going to say this any number of ways in the hopes that something will stick, but having this hidden life with God, having this prayer life, really means drawing God in and drawing us out. That's sort of what we're talking about. Prayer is having this hidden life with God, this deep, abiding, intimate, and personal relationship with Him. Prayer, like roots, is a living, dynamic thing. It's much more than a basement. Uh, Roots are always in search of water. They're thirsty, right? And this process of searching for something is actually what establishes it and gives it strength. And I want you to think of prayer this way, as a verb. It's not something that uh, we do, but something more that we're doing. We're looking and we're listening for God. We're getting his word and his life inside of us. And we're learning how to give an honest answer. That's what we're talking about here. God has given us something uh, right smack dab in the middle of the Bible that is there to help us to pray. Uh, We could call it a school of sorts. It's the Psalms. It's 150 prayers smack dab in the middle of the Bible, sort of at its very heart. And I think this placement is providential. At the heart of the Bible, we have... A heart of prayer, this hidden life with God. Now, it's true that some things in life are taught and other things are caught. And I think prayer is definitely one of those things that is caught more than taught. I'm not saying that there isn't anything to be taught. I mean, when Jesus' disciples ask him to pray, as we heard them last week, right, teach us to pray, Jesus gives them a prayer and he says, pray this way, beginning with our Father who art in heaven. As we said last week, how we begin our prayers matters. If we think that prayer is stuffing a message in a bottle and chucking it into the sea where nobody's really going to read it and no one's really going to care, we're not going to be inclined to do very much of it. Or if we think that God is an angry boss who's looking for some excuse to fire us, we're not going to be inclined to be really open and honest with him unless we get fired. Right? How we begin our prayers matters. It affects what we say and how we say it. Jesus, is, Jesus teaches us to, to pray our Father. 
But if you really want to learn how to pray, it's best for you to be around those who are praying. To spend time with the prayers, I think, in the Psalms. To be around them and to listen to their conversation and paying attention to the language that they use. uh, Paying attention to their manners of speech. Learning prayer in a lot of ways is like learning a foreign language. Uh, We do it best by immersion. Let's say you want to be a translator at the United Nations. You go to New York. This is your aspiration, right? I'm going to work at the UN. But you're not very interested in learning other languages. That's not going to work very well, right? If you want to translate for the Senegalese ambassador, you need to know French, for example. And I think there's a correlation for us. If we want to pray, if we want to put down roots, we're going to need to learn how to pray. We're going to need to learn a new language. And we're going to do that best as we immerse ourselves in the Psalms. In this sort of apprenticeship of sorts, there is a lot of promise, but I think there are also some pitfalls. When we come to the Psalms, we're listening to people pray. And we're listening to them pour their hearts out to God. And if you pay like extra close attention, you can even hear what God is saying back to them. There's a lot that we can learn from their conversation. But if you and I are not careful, there's a danger in thinking I've heard an intimate conversation with God, therefore I have had an intimate conversation with God. There are two ways that I can illustrate this for you. Back in the day, before cell phones, we had phones that were like literally connected to the wall. We had a landline. My home, it was 255-2324. If you dialed 255-2324, all the phones in our house would ring. Now let's say... My Oma, my grandmother, my mom's mom, was calling my mom. She wants to talk to her on the phone. She, 255, 234, all the phones are ringing in the house. My mom picks up the phone in the kitchen. She says, hello. They start having this conversation. Well, sometimes as a kid, I would like run up to my parents' room because I wanted to be like a spy. And I would very quietly lift the receiver off of the phone and hold it to my ear. And I would listen to the conversation that they were having. Well, in this conversation, I'm learning some things about my Oma and about my mom. Uh, They're sharing details about their lives with each other, sometimes details that I didn't even know. And I'm hearing the ways that they talk with one another and what it sounds like for two adults who love each other to have a conversation. I'm learning a lot of things as I'm sort of leaning in on this conversation. I'm hearing an intimate conversation. But that intimate conversation is between them. It's not with me. If I want to have an intimate conversation with my mom, or if I want to have an intimate uh, conversation with my grandma right before she died, I need to pick up the phone, and I need to call them, or they need to call me. It's not sufficient for me to just listen in, right, to be engaged in that intimacy. I'm just an observer, as it were. I'm not a participant. Does this make sense? There's an, there's an analogy here when we listen into the prayers, right? There's an intimate conversation taking place between, let's say, David and God or Asaph and God. 
And there's things that we can learn. We can learn not just things about David and God. We can actually learn what it's like to enter into this conversation. But that still is their conversation. It's not ours. If we want to have that kind of intimacy, we're going to have to put some things into practice ourselves. Does that make sense? The second way I would like to illustrate this for you. We've been talking about prayer as sort of drinking up water, right, as roots. And we can think about, like, this, like, here I am. Like, we're thirsty people, and I've got a, a, a Nalgene here with water. I go in the kitchen over there. I can fill it up with water, and I can open it up. I can take a sip. I'm not actually going to do it. It feels a little silly at this point. But, like, let's say I take a sip of water from this Nalgene, and I say, oh, my gosh, this water is cool, and it's refreshing, and it has satisfied my thirst. You have learned some things about the water that I just took out of the tap there, that it's cool, it's refreshing, and it satisfied my thirst. Here's the thing. At the end of this conversation, my thirst has actually been slaked. It's actually been satisfied. Yours hasn't. You're still thirsty. You can learn some things as you listen and as you watch me take a drink of water. We can learn some things as we watch these prayers, these psalmists, right, take a good drink of water as they connect with God and as they drink deeply from him. But at the end of the day, it's their thirst that's actually been satisfied, not ours. If we want to have our thirst satisfied, we've got to do as they've done. We've got to pray like they've done. We've got to be open. We've got to be honest. We've got to pour our hearts out before God. Otherwise, we're people who know that water is cool, we know that water is stressed, we know, ostensibly, in theory, it could satisfy our souls, but we're still thirsty. Make sense? Cool. God has given us a school to teach us to pray. He's given us 150 prayers smack dab in the middle of the Bible. And before we dive into Psalm 23... When we talk about what it means for us to connect with God and our fear, to connect with God in the valley of the shadow of death, which is this language that comes from the fourth verse. If we want to know what, it, before we talk about connecting with Him in that place, there's just a few other things I just want to lay out, in some ways by way of introduction, just about the, about the Psalms. We talked about some pitfalls, right? Like almost having this false intimacy if we don't actually put some things into practice. But what are some things that we can look forward to? What are some things uh, that maybe it, it holds out as a promise to us? Well, first thing I want you to know about these 150 prayers, even before you've read any of them, is that these are all over the map. They're written by a bunch of different people experiencing a bunch of different things, a bunch of different life circumstances, and they're feeling all kinds of feels. One prayer might have someone on a mountaintop sort of just praising God for his goodness. And the next prayer might be someone in the pits of despair crying for help. And then we have sort of everything there in between. Several years ago, uh, I made a poster for the Psalms. And we can throw it up here. Um, The Psalms, all 150 of them, are poetic. right? They're emotionally evocative. And typically, when I read a psalm, uh, a picture comes to mind. Well, about five years ago, I started collecting these sort of mental pictures and actually finding images that corresponded with the image that was in my mind. And I began just collecting them. And I started to then just arrange them, uh, one picture for every psalm. And you can see that sort of 1 to 10 on the top row, 11 to 20, the second, 21 to 30, 
all the way down to 150. What I love about this poster is that you can see visually just how diverse the Psalms are. Right? The Psalms really do encompass the entirety of the human experience, the entirety of our emotional life before God. And I think this is a very encouraging picture. I hope this is an encouraging picture for you as we get ready to embark on this journey, because it shows you that, yes, there really is a school of prayer that is good for the whole of our life. The second thing, and thank you, Steve. Uh, We can put that away for now. The second thing I want you to learn about this language school is that the language in the Psalms is really simple. It's primary language. It's, it's everyday speech. It's what Eugene Peterson calls first language, the, the, the first kind of language that we learn as children, the language that we use between uh, mother and child. It's the language of love and relationship and intimacy. You're going to find poetry in the Psalms, but it is not the kind of poetry that you need a dictionary to understand. It's poetry of someone who's trying to express and convey what is really going on in their lives, like words in search of language that is going to give full and honest expression to what's really going on inside. Like, I feel like a deer, out of breath, desperate for water. Or, I want to fly away like a bird, far, far away. Or, I'm being crushed by the waves. Or, I'm like a little chicken. And I need you, God, to cover me in the shadow of your wing. This is the kind of poetry that we're introduced uh, to here. But it's simple. It's simple language. It's honest speech. The third thing I want you to see is that the prayers in the Psalms are not formulaic. Sometimes when we go to people and we ask them, teach us to pray, we're given sort of an acronym or a formula. Like pray like this, pray acts. Start with adoration and then go to confession and then do thanksgiving and finally uh, a time for supplication, you know, asking God for things that you want. But we don't see any of those kinds of formulas in the Psalms, in this schoolhouse of prayer. What you will find instead are a bunch of people being super honest about where they are at. And you're going to see them and hear them connecting with God in that place. And this is what I ultimately want for you. This is what I hope that you learn and learn to do. I want you to hear people being really honest with God about where they're at. And I want that exposure to embolden you and encourage you and even equip you to do the same thing, right? For you to be honest too. The very last thing we're gonna, I'm going to say before we dive into Psalm 23 uh, is this, and it's related to what we have here on the table. I want you all, as a gift to you, to take this home with you. I, these are um, things called the feelings wheel. Uh, it comes to us from the Gento Institute. There's other variations of this online. But I've printed these out and I've laminated them for you so you can have them as a bookmark uh, for your Bible. Something you can just keep in there, keep in a book. Uh, something that you can consult and read. You don't have to do it on your phone. Right? It's just there for you. 
This has been a profoundly helpful tool for me in teaching me how to pray and also just for my own personal growth. I think emotions are like the lights or the symbols on the dash of our car. Right? So you're driving, sometimes there's, there's, there's communication on the dash that tells us what's going on, how we're, how we're doing, what speed we're going at, also what's happening under the hood. Sometimes our dash lights up and it tells us that we are low on fuel, that we need more washer fluid, or we need to check the engine. If we're going to go the distance with God and we're not going to crash on the side of the road, it's good for us to pay attention to the signs. They're flashing up on the dashboard of our life, registering in our body. For, for us to know what those things mean, what they correspond to. Much the same way we need to pay attention. I mean, we need to do that with our cars. We need to do that with our bodies. And we need to understand the emotional signals that it's sending us. Let me give you an example just from the past couple of years. 2019, 2020. We all, in some ways, that's code. We all know what that means. But in 2019 and 20, I was feeling a lot of tension in my chest. I was feeling shortness of breath. I just assumed that I was getting angry at everything that was wrong with the world. But when I pulled, fair, right? There's a lot to be angry at. But when I pulled this out, I realized that's not all that was going on. I would look at this, these descriptions for anger. I was like, yeah, I'm feeling some of those things, but it, that's not it exactly. When I, my eyes went up and they read sort of the pizza slice above it about fear, it was starting to make a lot of sense. That that is actually what was going on. Why I was short of breath. Why I was feeling this tension in my chest. I realized I wasn't angry so much as I was afraid. And there really is a difference between those two things. Between being afraid and being angry. I mean, praying angry, for me at least, sounds like, God, cut them down. Or cut that out. Put an end to this madness. Again, a valid prayer for 2019 and 20. But praying afraid sounds like, God, where are you? And help me. And comfort me. And shelter me. And see me through this mess. I don't know if you can hear a difference, but there is one. Here's the kicker. God is always going to meet us where we're at. He's there like ringing the doorbell of our hearts. But to hear his address, it's helpful for you to know yours. It's helpful for you to know where you are at. And my question is, do you? Do you know where you're at? Because if you don't, it's going to be hard for you to connect with God because he's there. Right? That's where he is. This will really help you. This is like an emotional GPS that will help you like drop a pin so that you can share your location for others to find you, God included. That's what this is for. Okay. Psalm 23. You all with me? Good. The remainder of our time tonight, maybe for the next 10, 15 minutes, I want to talk to you about connecting with God and our fear. This little slice of the pie where we read things like scared, frightened, helpless, terrified, 
panicked and hysterical, insecure, inferior, inadequate, nervous, worried, anxious, horrified, mortified. What does it look like for us to connect with God in those places, with those feelings? The title of this talk could just as well be Connecting with God in the Valley of the Shadow of Death. It's a picture that comes to us from this psalm. There are many places that we can go in the Psalter to hear people praying their fear. There are, as I've said, 150 of these. And the majority of them, I think, deal with this emotion. It is the dominant emotion of the Psalter, fear. Prayer after prayer, we will hear people praying their helplessness and their panic and their terror and their insecurity. But tonight, I, want, I simply want to take you to one of them. I want to take you to Psalm 23. Because I think the image of being a sheep walking through the valley of the shadow of death is at once the simplest and the most profound description we have in the Bible of what it looks like and sounds like to live in fear. I'm a sheep in the valley of the shadow of death. In this psalm, we hear King David identify as a sheep. You're like, where? First line, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. The implication being, I myself am a sheep. A sheep, you might not know this. Very few of us, I think, raised on farms. Most of us maybe grew up in the city. But sheep are pretty helpless creatures, right? They're some of the most helpless, vulnerable, pathetic creatures on the planet. They are. Sheep are so timid and they're so easily panicked that a rabbit suddenly bounding from behind a bush can send the whole flock into a stampede. When sheep are afraid, they easily get lost. And the only thing that they know how to do is to run and to cry for help. Like sheep have no defensive mechanism, right? They're just cotton ball with legs. I mean, they look like mountain lion food. (laughs) They're pathetic. They have zero defense mechanisms of their own. And it is pointless to tell a sheep to toughen up. You have to be naive or cynical, too, to say that there's nothing for them to fear. Because there are hazards everywhere. From rushing water to steep cliffs to wolves and coyotes and mountain lions and stray dogs and thieves, there is danger for the sheep around every bend. That said, I read a book this week from a modern-day shepherd who said, the only thing that can calm and quiet a sheep is seeing the shepherd with them in the field. If they know a shepherd is with them, they're okay. At the beginning of this prayer, verses 1, 2, and 3, we see sheep in a broad pasture. You can follow along if you like with your hand out. They're lying down. They're drinking from still water. And the, 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 the picture that is painted for us is a very pleasant and pastoral one. I've led Bible studies on this passage before, and I've asked folks, I've asked students like you to paint a picture for me. Like, what colors would you use in this palette? And time and again, it's 
I see I'm dabbing my, my paintbrush in, in green and I'm painting a green uh, field and there's a blue sky and there's maybe some yellow from the sun as it maybe it's setting. It's a beautiful picture and there's little white sheep in the field and there's a pastor. He's present, but he's not really dominating the scene. He's sort of there. He's sort of in the, the background. He's maybe leaning on his staff. It's a pretty picture. The shepherd doesn't loom large. He's not front and center, but he's present just the same. However, this picture changes dramatically when we get to verse 4. The scene totally changes. We've left the wide expanse of space and we've entered into a darkened valley. The valley of the shadow of death. And sheep which were spread out are now seen in the mind's eye, huddled up tightly or in a line. The greens and blues and the yellows that we used to paint the first picture are now being replaced with browns and blacks and gray and red. We are now in the valley of the shadow of death. Sounds kind of like Mordor from Lord of the Rings. The valley of the shadow of death. Most of us, I think, live our lives in this space. In this valley. The valley of the shadow of death. We live most of our lives keenly aware that there is danger all around us and around the next bend. We feel insecure. Uh, In the fourth verse, the sheep are being moved, they're in transition. And we often feel that way that we are constantly on the move. And transitioning from one place to the next. Never really at home. right? Never fully at rest. And that brings fear and uncertainty. Not just within us, but sort of like what's, what's going to happen. The valley of the shadow of death is an apt description for what most life feels like. And what life, I think, has felt like for us these past few years. I talked about 2019 and 2020. Well, let me just personally give you sort of a glimpse of what that looked like for me. In 2019, besides the pandemic, the church that we belonged to, it fell apart. And there was questions about whether we would be able to stay here in Burlington. There's a lot of fear around that, a lot of insecurity. Then, of course, the pandemic happened and there was the fear of empty grocery shelves, the fear of not being able to provide for my family the fear of getting sick and of loved ones dying. We saw fires ravaging California. We saw floods devastating the Southeast. We saw innocent black men and women being shot and killed by police. We saw a sitting president refuse to commit to a peaceful transfer of power and then inside a mob at the Capitol. A kid in Willis class drowned while canoeing with her family, while canoeing with his family. And loved ones in my own family, they got sick, not of COVID, and they died. I lived in this space, the valley of the shadow of death. I've been in it. But so have you. And so are you. Because you too have lived with the fears of COVID. You've had to live with the fear of classes getting disrupted and then being canceled. And wondering, how am I going to finish school? 
You've had to deal with the fears of maybe not getting a job when you graduate because the economy is in the state that it's in. You're navigating times of transition. What do I do after I graduate? And you're not just wrestling with fears of your future. You're dealing with fears here and now. Some of you are really afraid to walk to your dorm at night from the library to your dorm. Right? We all get those police reports of people being harassed and sexually assaulted. You're afraid of injury and accidents and loved ones dying. You're afraid of dating. I mean, that's a valley of the shadow of death if there ever was one, right? Like just the insecurity and the hazards that kind of go with those relationships. Praying and connecting with God in our fear. Connecting with God in the valley of the shadow of death begins with an awareness and a mission that we are in this place. That we're in this valley. And that we experience it as sheep and not as shepherds. I mean, so often we are surrounded by people, you know, like boss bitches and CEOs and influencers and people who seem to have like everything together, that their life is in control. But here's a secret. They are little kids. They're sheep too. You know, it's a great secret, and maybe it's, it's, it's the great reveal that your mom and dad, like the people that you've looked up to, the people that you've, maybe for a lot of your life, they, they had it, everything in control. It's a great reveal that they're just making it up as they go along. That deep down inside, they really are afraid, much like you are afraid. And they're just trying to, to project calm and steady. They don't want to freak you out. It is... It is significant that this is King David praying. The Lord is my shepherd and I am a sheep. This is someone who's like at the top. Like he is the boss. He's the mogul. He's the CEO. He's got all the power. And he's, he's like, yeah, I, I'm actually just a sheep. I'm really afraid. And that's what, here's what I love about this. You're seeing someone at the top. Identify with something that's really low. And he's being really open and honest and saying, you know what? I don't have it all together. You know what? Here's my Achilles heel. You know what? I'm really afraid. And his openness and honesty gives us courage to be open and honest with God too. It's like if King David can say that, well, gosh, then I can too. Does that make sense? The Bible is giving you a lot of liberty here to say, come clean, come open, come honest. Yeah, life is really like the valley of the shadow of death, and we experience it like sheep. It, the praying life begins, I think, with that kind of open and honest admission. I think we've got to start there. But there's another thing I want you to see, right? Because it's not just being open and honest with God. It's connecting with God in that place. 
It's learning how to, to, to tell the truth, but it's also learning how to listen for an answer. And I want you to see how God shows up here. Because this is not just David talking about sheep and talking about valleys. Ultimately, what this is about, Psalm 23, is about the shepherd. And where he is and how he shows up. It's ultimately a prayer about God's presence in, in David's life. And by extension, by invitation, our own. If there is an answer from God for us in the psalm to fearful sheep, it's this. I am with you and I am for you all the days of your life. I am with you and I am for you all the days of your life. No matter where you go, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, I will be there with you as your shepherd. I will see you through. That's the answer that we can if we're, if we're paying close attention, that, that we can hear. In verses 1 to 3, David talks about the shepherd in the third person. He says, he makes me lie down in green pasture. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Things change in the valley. And in verse 4, David stops talking about a shepherd and he starts talking to him. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Not he is with me, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There's a subtle shift here, but it is a significant one. When we are afraid, when we are in the valley, talk about God gives way to talking to God. Because it's in these moments of life, the valley of the shadow of death, that we discover we not only need, but that we have a shepherd who is near us and is guiding us and comforting us and protecting us, who is with us and who is for us. Maybe you doubt that. Maybe you think, well, that's a sweet idea, or maybe that's true for David, but could it be true for me? I want to tell you the answer is yes. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd of Psalm 23. I'm the one David was talking about. Now, there were, of course, good and bad shepherds then as well as now. But Jesus proves that he is the good shepherd for lost sheep. And he proves this by his willingness to lay down his life for the sheep. He says, I'm the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. And I lay down my life for my sheep. And you all, you know what he did? On the cross, Jesus laid down his life for his sheep. He laid down his life for us. He took the punishment that our sins deserve. He removed everything that stood between us and his father so that we could be led home. And not only did he lay down his life, he picked it up again. In John chapter 10, the same chapter, Jesus says, For this reason the father loves me. It's because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. What this means for you and me is that there really is a good shepherd who didn't just live once upon a time, but who's alive and who is yours. A shepherd who says, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. A shepherd who says, there's nowhere that you can go that I haven't gone before you. Not even death. I've, I've even gone before you in that. There's nowhere that you can go that I will not be with you. Not even death itself. 
and who is going to be with you and for you in the broad and expansive spaces of your lives, but also in the dark and deadly ones. Because he is a shepherd who is with you, right, all the days of our lives. Here's, here's the conclusion. When you and I learn to pray like David did in this psalm, and we listen to people pour out their, their fear openly and honestly before God, confessing their sheepishness, confessing their fears, what we discover is that God is not just a shepherd, not even David's shepherd, but he can be ours too. When we learn to pray like David, we can say alongside him, the Lord is my shepherd. And not just a shepherd, but mine. He leads and guides me. Right? He restores and saves me. His rod and staff, they comfort me. This is the invitation to you from Psalm 23. And in, in some ways, this too is the promise. First sheep in the valley of the shadow of death, you have a shepherd who will see you through. Let's pray.